We want to buy companies that are in clear long-term uptrends where we can see the stocks are channeling upwards. So we don't want to buy anything that is not in the top 20% of the market in relative strength, isn't above a rising 50 and 200 day, and is clearly, you know, sort of up and up and to the right. But these kind of growth stocks oftentimes get very extended from what we in the O'Neill system would call a proper entry point or pivot point. And when they're very extended, we want to wait for it to come back down to that pivot point and purchase the stock there. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I are joined by two great guests, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree Investments, and Randy Watts, Chief Investment Officer for O'Neill Global Advisors, sit down with us to talk about growth stock investing, the difference between momentum stocks and growth stocks, what Randy and the team at O'Neill look for in a winning growth stock, and the importance of cutting your losses and letting your winners run, and much, much more. O'Neill Global Advisors and Wisdom Tree have partnered up, and now investors can access O'Neill's disciplined growth investment strategy in an ETF wrapper. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Jeremy Schwartz and Randy Watts. Okay, Randy and Jeremy, thank you guys both for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Justin and Jack. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. We're going to talk about fundamental growth stock investing and the methodology developed um, initially by William O'Neill. But before we get into that, I thought it might just be good to let um, one or both of you talk about the new partnership between Wisdom Tree and O'Neill Global Advisors and you know, maybe specifically the opportunity that you see with this new ETF that is um, based on O'Neill's investment strategy. Maybe I'll do a, a quick origin on Wisdom Tree and how it got us to find Randy and their team. Um, you know, I, I've been with Wisdom Tree from our very beginning. We had our 15 year anniversary. You know, I grew up studying under Jeremy Siegel at Wharton and, you know, he had done a lot of research on value investing and dividends and earnings. Uh, you know, in our first 20 funds in 06, we're all dividend-based and, and very value-oriented. And, you know, as we were looking through the markets over time, we definitely had a glaring hole going after more growth-oriented and momentum from some of those origins and, and sort of coming out in the aftermath of the tech bubble. And when I started f researching who is really great uh, thought leaders on growth, I'd come across a podcast where... You know, the O'Neill team was featured. One of our friends, Corey Hofstein, had one of the, the members of the O'Neill team on the podcast and that sparked the conversation. And we, we got to meet Randy and his team at O'Neill Global Advisors. And they do have one of the longest histories. And 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 to have a what we think is the 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 real pioneers of growth investing, building an index that we can replicate with our ETF, you know, WGRO, the growth and the wisdom for growth momentum fund, that was an exciting opportunity for us to to leverage their insights. And, and likewise, we're very ex excited to work with Wisdom Tree, obviously one of the leaders in the ETF space. ETFs continue to be a growing uh, portion of the investment community, especially for the retail investor, giving them flexibility and low fees to move in and out of asset classes. Uh, William O'Neill, uh, obviously Bill O'Neill, one of the great investors in, in U.S. history, uh, founded the O'Neill Methodology uh, well-known author made a book called How to Make Money in Stocks that sold over 2 million copies. 
I'm the chief investment officer of our external man money management operation, which is called O'Neill Global Advisors. We run over $400 million. Again, we have a focus on, on growth and we also focus on using quantitative systematic techniques to employ investment strategies. That's great, guys. Thank you. Uh, Randy, you'll be happy to know I have uh, my uh, book here, How to Make Money in Stocks, fourth edition. I see yours in the back. Nice, nice. So yeah, before we get into um, maybe the, the methodology and the strategy specifically, I wanted to ask you, Randy, um, a couple of things here. One, I wanted to start with sort of the difference between growth investing and momentum investing, because I think a lot of investors sort of group those two um, styles or types of investing together. So maybe if you want to kind of help us understand in your mind how you distinguish between growth stock investing and momentum stock investing. I think of growth investing as investing that relates to the fundamentals of a company, in particular, the company's revenue growth and earnings growth. And obviously in growth stock investing, you want to be buying stocks and holding stocks that have a higher revenue and earnings growth than the overall market. So that are growing faster than their stock market peers. I think of momentum investing as really investing that has a technical component that relates to the price action of the stock. In momentum investing, you want to own stocks that have very high relative strength relative to the rest of the market and also strong price appreciation. You're essentially following positive price trends, both absolute and relative to the rest of the market. So one is fundamental and one is technical. In your experience, when do those two things maybe come together and when are they sort of separate? Like I'm thinking like it, not recently, but maybe you know, value stocks have kind of become like momentum stocks up until a few months ago. So you get this changing dynamic in the market, but they're not always sort of aligned, but in your experience, when are they aligned um, more so? Generally, you know, stocks, stock prices follow revenue and earnings growth. So over the long term, you know, many years, a stock's price will follow its earnings growth or its profit growth. However, there are times in the economic cycle especially when we're coming out of an economic downturn and the economy is getting ready to inflect and move upwards, where investors will look ahead to better profit growth for cyclical stocks. Many cyclical stocks tend to be value stocks. And what will happen is they will bid up those value stocks in price before the fundamentals have even turned in terms of the earnings of those value stocks. And two good examples of that are when we came out of the 2008 bear market and before the economy had really rebounded in early 2009, very many of those value cyclical stocks had huge moves in price because the market was looking ahead to an economic recovery. That happened as well in this cycle when near the end of last year and the beginning of this year, the market looked ahead to a better U.S. economy in a reopening as the lockdown restrictions went away and they bid up many of the value stocks and, and cyclical stocks. So you had stocks like, like stocks in the travel space, things like Hertz and the airlines, where their prices started to improve and the stocks had a lot of random strength momentum, even though their financials hadn't bottomed yet. So generally, stock price and earnings move in line that major economic bottoms, when the economy is getting ready to inflect, there's actually a differentiation and the market rotates from growth 
into value and those stocks assume the right of strength lead and price lead and those become momentum stocks for a period of time until the economy starts to normalize itself. One of the interesting things I've always found about growth as a quant investor is there seems to be a dichotomy to it. So on one side, if you run tests on sales growth or EPS growth over time, and you just put every stock in there, you tend to see underperformance. But the best performing stocks, the diamonds in the rough, all tend to come from the growth basket instead of the value basket. So I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe some of the criteria you use to, to try to look for the best growth companies. Well, let me, let me say two things here before, before I answer your question. First is, there was a study done out of Arizona State University, and it looks at all the stocks in the market, basically, post-war. And what you find is that 4% of stocks contribute the majority of the stock market gain above the rate of inflation using the T-bill as a proxy for inflation. So 96% of stocks either outperform or underperform the T-bill by a little bit. And the majority of stock market gains are actually driven by these 4% you know, which are like 10, 10, 10x winners. We call those model book stocks in the O'Neill vocabulary. Those kind of big winners tend to come from sectors of the economy where there's a lot of innovation. And those places of innovation, now that does change over long periods of time. If we went back to the 1800s, railroads would be very innovative stocks. But today in the modern world, that tends to really come from one of three areas, technology, healthcare, and specialty areas of, of consumer. So really you wanna, wanna focus on those areas long-term to find those big winning stocks. We employ a quantitative technique to that in that a lot of those big growth stocks have very recognizable sets of characteristics, both fundamentally and technically. Fundamentally, they're already growing their revenues and earnings successfully before the stock has a big move. So they're already growing faster than the market when they start to take, start to take off. And, and most times, not all the time, but most times they're also profitable. And then they're exhibiting strong relative strength, both on an individual stock level and on an industry group level. Because again, over the long haul, the big winners tend to be in places where there's innovation. I want to talk a little bit about specific metrics. You know, as, as a quant nerd, I like to get into the details and see, you know, exactly how you might go about selecting growth companies. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you talk about some of the specific metrics you found most useful in identifying good growth companies? So for the O'Neill Growth Index, which is, as Jeremy uh, spoke about, uh, what their ETF tracks, we really looked at, at two sets of metrics. The first is Datagraph. Datagraph is, is a proprietary O'Neill rating system but it takes a bunch of fundamental factors and boils it down to a single number, which we then use to rank all the stocks in the U.S. market, okay? And that includes things like earnings growth and revenue growth and margin structure and relative strength. The second group relates to technicals. Then we use three measures. We use pullback. Pullback is a measure of a stock that's in a long-term uptrend that has pulled back slightly, but still within that uptrend channel so we think there's a good entry point. Volatility, which measures a stock standard deviation of returns over a one-year basis, and something we call hotness. Hotness measures the speculative trading intensity of a stock. We found that stocks that rank very high on hotness, which means they're trading a lot of volume, 
relative to their floating market cap actually tend to not perform that great in the forward 12 months. Sometimes they do, but oftentimes they, they, they don't. They're a little bit too topical and everyone's involved. And so if, with regards to our index, we're really looking for stocks that have strong fundamentals, that are in uptrends, and have had a little bit of a pullback, so we're not buying the stock in an extended point. A lot of these big growth stocks tend to have big runs, but they do tend to get extended, and then they pull back towards their long-term averages, and then those are good, those are good buy points. So we really use a set of fundamental and, and technical price-related measures to try to select the best names. One of the things I've noticed about growth stocks, and you know, this may not be completely true anymore because of the Facebooks of the world, but it seems like it's important to catch the growth early. Um, it seems like the, the growth is much greater earlier, and then it, it size eventually catches up with you, and it's tough to sustain those rates on, on large size. Um, have you found the same thing? And if so, what metrics do you think maybe help to identify growth early in its stages? Okay, so there's, there's a lot there to unpack. It's a great question. Okay, the first thing that's changed dramatically, and I'm, I'm sure Jeremy can, Jeremy can comment on this too, is the way the public markets function. Previously, now I'm going to date myself, I've been in the market a long time. You know, previously a company would get to where it was doing 15 to 25 million in, in our quarterly sales, and they would come public. So they'd come public at, let's say, a $100 million sales run rate. This is going back to the early 90s. And then if it was a good growth stock, that sales would ramp over time to a billion dollars. And public investors would get that ride from a hundred million to a billion. There's so much money in the world, in the investing world. There's so much money available for venture capital. There's so much money available for private equity that now companies can fund their growth without coming public till much later in their life cycles. So some of that value appreciation has been taken away from public stock investors and transferred into the private equity and venture capital world. Companies come public much later in their life cycle. At the beginning of my career, a company like Facebook would never have come public that late, but they were able to raise billions of dollars to fund their growth before they had to come public. So some of that is, 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 is you know, absolutely gone. Now there's still growth to be had you're just buying it in at the, at the later part of, of the cycle. So you can still benefit from that. But in some of these stocks, you know, and I'm making up a number, instead of a hundred time return, maybe you're now getting a 25 or a 50 time return because the venture in the private equity community has, has really, has really, you know, captured that, that growth. A lot of the, uh, the big returns you're talking about have come in recent years from technology. And, you know, one, one of the challenges we always like to think about in terms of constructing any type of portfolio, but particularly growth, is the idea that a lot of growth is in technology and balancing that with not putting too much weight in one given sector. So I'm wondering how you think about that. Do you, do you think there, it, it's appropriate to put some sort of limits on the technology sector, or, or do you think it's better to let the model go wherever it finds growth? Well, I would say two things, and I actually want to make, I mean, make move back to that previous answer. There's one thing I forgot to mention to you. With regards to the technology stocks, the other thing that's changed, and when you said, you know, they may have big moves, they're still, still growth ahead, or they still have good investments. The economic moats of a lot of these large technology stocks are of the magnitude we haven't seen in a long, long time. So Microsoft, which I should mention I own personally, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they have such high market shares that it's much harder for companies to compete against them 
So that's one of the reasons these large companies have been able to sustain their growth. And if you look at the revenue and earnings growth of the mega cap tech stocks, it's actually very, very good. For many years in the last five years, these mega caps have actually outgrown many small cap stocks in terms of revenues and, and, and earnings. So, so that's a change. In terms of the sector concentration, in our index, we don't have a hard limit on it, but we do pay a lot of attention to relative strength. So if relative strength starts to fade for a group or an industry, we want to migrate into where the, where the growth is. Um, I do think you want to be where the growth is in the market, even if it means you're overweight around sectors. Now, I should comment that a lot of growth investors are overweight technology right now. Obviously, it's a good place to be, given what I just said. However, one of the places we're overweight right now is consumer discretionary. There's a lot of positive fundamental momentum right, right now in consumer discretionary. And that's because people are coming out of lockdown with their consumer balance sheets in much better shape than they've been in years, because basically nobody's spending money for 18 months. So there's a lot of pent up consumer savings that's gonna come out and flow into this, uh, consumer discretionary. And you're actually seeing that right now in a lot of areas of the market where there's shortages, you know, cars are short, handbags are short, watches are short. There's a lot of demand, there's limited supply, and usually that's good for the seller of whatever good it is that has that, that, that demand. If I could add just on the ETF, speaking of concentration, you know, very often in those large cap growth indexes that you see from an S&P or a Russell that are very, you know, top heavy, you know, we are, are the weeding process of that O'Neill growth index is factor weeded. So it has what, you know, in, in all sorts of factor weeding, it, it turns tilts around equal weeding much more than, than cap weeding, you know, so I think what, one of the things that's nice about this, what, you know, what, what we consider a, a true pure growth, high growth, high momentum, relative strength index is you're not going to get those same fang holdings at the top. It'll be a fairly differentiated growth basket. I want to ask one more point on that, that uh, thing you talked about with Facebook, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Facebook and a lot of these companies have tended to sort of defy the general rules of growth. They've gotten a lot bigger and maintained those growth rates. I'm wondering, do you think there's anything that could slow that down? I mean, there's gotta be a point where that slows down, right? Or, or do you think this is something that could continue for a long time because the world's just different? I think it depends on the stock. I think for the mega cap stocks, the biggest risk is government regulation. Uh, I think with regards to Facebook and Google, we are coming out of an economic downturn. Historically, when you do, advertising spending picks up quite a bit. Brands try, like to try to reinforce their, 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 their brand uh, uh, reputation. And advertising is, is forecasted to grow mid to high single digits over the next 12 months. That's very good for Google and Facebook. There's still a transition from, from non-digital to digital advertising. So I think that's, that's going to be a very positive, positive effect. Again, with Microsoft that I own, you know, they're very dominant right now in the, in the personal computing space. Office 365 is doing terrific. Plus they have the kicker on gaming. Plus Azure, their cloud service business is growing over 50%. And then Amazon is also benefiting from consumer spending. It's also benefiting from the fact that a lot of consumers increased their usage of Amazon during COVID. And I don't think that's going away. I think people who are buying 20% of their goods online, it went to 40. I don't think that's going back to 20%. So there's a lot of good secular drivers for these companies. And I think their growth is actually going to be pretty good relative to the rest of the economy for the next several years. Again, the wild card is, is the government going to step in and, and do more regulation? 
we've seen that before, whether it was Microsoft 20 years ago, whether it was AT&T, you know, 30 years ago. So, so I think there are risks there, but from a competitive dynamic, these companies are doing very well and their markets are still growing. I just want to pick up on one other thing you said earlier, which is, you know, a lot of momentum funds tend to just have momentum in, in their strategy. And you have this idea of mean reversion. You're sort of marrying the concept of momentum, but also marry, bringing mean reversion in there. And I'm wondering if you just talk in a little more detail about how you do that. We want to buy companies that are in clear long-term uptrends where we can see the stocks are channeling upwards. So we don't want to buy anything that is not in the top 20% of the market in relative strength isn't above a rising 50 and 200 day and is clearly, you know, sort of up and up and to the right. But these kind of growth stocks oftentimes get very extended from what we in the O'Neill system would call a proper entry point or pivot point. And when they're very extended, we want to wait for it to come back down to that pivot point and purchase the stock there. Uh, most good growth stocks over the course of several years will give you multiple entry points over time where it's attractive technically to enter the stock. We just want to enter it at a good price and something that's very, very extended from the proper entry point, we want to trim back or sell. So it's really fine tuning what's in that uptrend and not just buying blindly. One of the um, things we know about momentum, it, I think it comes, you know, it's been tested academically, plus it was written about in Quantitative Momentum, which is a book by Wes Gray, which um, we know, but he, he kind of showed that Momentum is better when you have more consistent momentum. Um, and I think you have sort of a momentum consistency or volatility factor sort of in your process. So you could you just maybe talk to that a little bit of how, how you view consistency of momentum and, and why that's important? Sure. Stocks that are really volatile, the most volatile stocks in the market are actually usually not your best performers. Your best performers are, tend to be a little bit more you know, strong and steady. Well, they're not ripping all over in terms of their stock price. They're not going 10, 50, 15, you know, 60, that kind of movements. So we eliminate a lot of those most volatile stocks and look for limited volatility within an uptrend. We found those limited volatility stocks over a forward 12 months tend to outperform the most volatile stocks in the market. A lot of those most volatile stocks are also very crowded trades and tend to be quote unquote too hot, which means there's too much speculation going on in them. And a lot of times that group of stocks rotates every year. If you think about some of these, these large stocks we've talked about earlier in this presentation, those are not the flavor of the month stocks. Those are stocks that have been trending now for, for you know, five years. A lot of those stocks started to really trend uh, in the middle or end of 2016 is when they really started to get going. That was kind of the beginning of the, you know, the, that, you know, end of 15 to the middle of 16 was really the beginning of that strong fang trade. And that trade has really held through the last couple of years. One of the things that can be, I think, somewhat challenging, you sort of spoke to this earlier, but there's this idea when you have these transition points or changes of leadership in the market where, you know, you have one type of stock that's, do, or one, you know, type of security style, whatever have you, that's doing well. And then it sort of transitions to another um, style, like we were talking about before with, with value. I think there was some, one of the largest momentum ETFs out there, like rebalanced you know, right at the time where the value trade started to come off and, you know, large cap growth started to outperform again. So it was, you know, kind of an issue with bad timing on the rebalance, um, on the rebalancing. They got right in the wrong area right at the worst time. Um, but, you know, the trade-off is if you rebalance too frequently, then you have 
you know, higher transaction costs and you have to deal with that. And especially if a strategy is, you know, trying to scale, um, that can, you know, there can be issues there. So just how do you look at the question of how often to rebalance, um, in your, with this type of strategy, like what's the optimal approach? Yep. Maybe I could start there, Andy. I mean, I think when I look at the ETFs in the market, I mean, it's interesting, all the academic literature on momentum was done assuming a monthly rebalance. And, you know, to your point there, it's an MSCI index that rebalances twice a year that you're referring to. And so that's very disconnected from the academic research on momentum. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that at the most, there's some systematic quarterly funds that look at rebalancing. I think we're one of the first, uh, if not the first momentum index that or fund the tracking index rebalances monthly. Um, so that was an excitement for us. For us, this is our most, going to be our most actively traded ETF. I mean, most of our indexes rebalance annually. Uh, we do have some that rebalance quarterly, but to push our team to rebalance monthly was definitely, you know, it's pushing the operational, you know, boundaries of what we've done before, but we're excited to be doing it. We've done one live rebalance now that we've been in the market, uh, and, you know, we're looking forward to continuing that, but I think to get the latest updated portfolio characteristics of a pure momentum basket and, and the O'Neill growth momentum basket, I, I think that monthly rebalance was of prime importance. But, and I, I agree with everything Jeremy just said, you know, and O'Neill would try to take our clues of where the strength in the market is by looking at where the strength in the market is. So if you're only rebalancing once or twice a year. You can be locked into a group of stocks that are going way out of, out of favor and have very bad performance. So we always want to be in that top 20% of relative growth, relative strength industries and, and, and sectors. And that's a major reason for why we rebalance monthly. We don't want to be investing in a bunch of stocks that are fading, but are losing all their relative strength while the rest of the market takes off. Now we still need the stuff that's taking off to be good fundamentally with their data graph ranking for us to want to be involved, but we want to be in whatever the best 20% of growth sectors is in the market. And that's where we want to invest. We don't want to, you know, only rebalance once a year and be in something that's not going to work for 12 months and where investors could have 10, 20, 30% downside. So then that's the beauty of the ETF wrapper, right? You can do all that and still be extremely tax efficient. Exactly. And I think, you know, investors are obviously drawn to ETFs for a lot of reasons. They can, they can trade them frequently. They're low fee. If you compare the fee on, on, on these products relative to just a normal SMA active managed account, they're oftentimes half the, half the fee level. And the, it gives the investor the easy ability to change their personal portfolio and be in the, in the flavors of the market, whether it's a sector or a style that they want to be very quickly. I was looking at the portfolio and it seems to have more reasonable valuations than maybe your typical sort of growth portfolio. So how do you uh, think about the role of valuation and growth investing and does it play any part in your process? Well, I'm happy that the O'Neill Growth Index has a lower price earnings multiple looking forward than many of the competing indexes while still having equivalent or better revenue and earnings growth. But I, I should be blunt in that Valuation doesn't drive growth investing that much. If you look at these stocks, when they go on to have these big quote unquote modern moves, they actually start expensive and they get more expensive. So if you go back and think about stocks like, like Google, uh, when they first came public, these stocks were never trading below market multiples. They were never cheap stocks. 
they were expensive stocks that got more expensive. So I don't think valuation is the only criteria for selecting a, a growth stock. And oftentimes what happens is the revenues and earnings end up being much better than investors predict. So now looking back retrospectively, the stocks aren't as expensive as you thought they were at the time you bought them because the numbers ended up being so much better. So, I mean, I really do believe longer term focusing on areas of the market that have better relative revenue and earnings growth tends to be the best place to, to invest. And those do tend to be the stocks that are in that 4% group that greatly outperform the market over, the, over their lifestyle. So if you go back and think about early on, all those category killer retail stocks, stocks like Home Depot, I mean, those stocks were trading at a premium. They were not, they were not cheap stocks and they ended up being great investments for 20 years. I wanted to uh, pick up on one other thing before we uh, let Jeremy give us the definitive answer on where inflation's going in the future. Um, but I wanted to come back onto this thing you talked about with, uh, with sectors. Do, do you find with momentum that it's important that the momentum in an individual stock is also verified by its sector? So if the stock is doing really well, but its sector is not, would that be something you might exclude? Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to be in the stronger sectors in the market. Generally, generally, you're better off having the second best stock in the best sector than the best stock in a crummy sector. And why is that? Because normally there's something going on in that industry, which is contributing to what the revenue and profit growth of that sector is. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the worst sector market is today off the top of my head, but I think I'd rather own, you know, I'd rather own the second best technology stock than the best utility. And that's, you know, where the growth is and the growth tends to move in industry and sector groups. That makes sense. Um, Jeremy, before we finish up, I wanted to ask you, you know, Justin and I are both big fans of Behind the Markets, and we, we love listening to you, Jeremy Siegel, at the beginning, um, talking about what's going on in the economy. And, you know, we're kind of at a unique economic time right now. I mean, we're potentially going to have inflation pressures for the first time in a long time. We've got fiscal stimulus, which is a change to the way the government's operated. And I'm wondering if you could just maybe put all that in context and sort of give us some thoughts on what you think about the current economic environment. Yeah, um, if, you, if you've been listening, you, you've heard Siegel's message consistently, which is that, you know, the... Inflation, we do not see as transitory. You know, he, he thinks Powell is getting, you know, you, you saw a nuance in his commentary that, you know, a few weeks ago when he said six months in his recent following the Fed meeting, you know, these higher levels will be for 12 months. I mean, that, so that's a nuance of the Fed coming to, you know, recognize some of these inflations not being so transitory, more permanent. And so we do think, you know, he, Siegel's called for 20 to 25% cumulative inflation over the next three to, you know, three, four years. You know, you don't know if it's going to be 10, 5, 7, you know, how that, that cycle of how quickly it goes, if it's, you know, consistently 5, 6, 7% or if it bounces around. But because of the money supply growth that's happened, that's money in the system. It's in people's checking accounts. It's going to come out as we open up. And so that is what we think is these, you know, more permanent for the next few years. Uh, inflation pressures, and we do think eventually the Fed will recognize and and taper sooner than people have talked about, and and see what even called for the first hike to occur next year. Um, whereas they, you know, they still mostly the market still in 2023. Uh, so it's it's it is one of those issues that we are, you know, we do think is a big issue for the Fed that they're going to have to start grappling with. And what do you think about fiscal stimulus going forward? I mean, do you think this is here to stay? Do you think every time we have a slowdown now, we're going to probably write more checks? And when what do you think that means in terms of the economy going forward? 
I mean, it, it, I mean, interestingly, you say if we were really concerned, if the market was really concerned about it as being an issue, I mean, they, you know, arguably the Fed should always, the, the government should always do as much as they can and see if it has an impact on interest rates. I and mean, there's been zero impact on interest rates. If anything, they've just collapsed, you know, so the bond market is not at all worried about it. I could say they're not all worried about it until they do worry about it. And then you had these crisis moments like you had in, in Europe, you know, with the sovereign debt crisis there. I mean, Japan is showing you can have really high debt to GDP ratios. The Bank of Japan is going to own every bond the, the government issued. I mean, it's, and you haven't had this massive currency weakness in Japan. I mean, everybody's waited for that, but they printed yen, yeah, they bought the bonds and there's been no issue. I mean, the question will be, what are those implications over time? It, it, it does seem like we've gotten comfortable doing more of it. You would expect that this is going to become part of the new normal. Um, the, the question will be, what is the baseline and, and how do we affect it? But it, it does seem, you know, we've, we've come to this, this new regime. I mean, a couple of points there, Jack. Uh, one, you can get away with it as long as your currency holds up. Your currency ends up being the, the cop on the beat that prevents some of that kind of monetization of your debt. Okay. And right now the dollar is still incredibly strong relative to the, to, to, to the rest of the world. Uh, so that, that's, that's, that's one point. With regards to the stimulus, the bond markets had such a big move over the last couple of weeks with prices rising on the bonds and yields dropping. It does appear that the bond market is betting what a lot of the stimulus isn't going to get through, get through Congress. And then the last point, which Jer Jeremy and I have talked about a couple of times, is that I think some of this inflation is going to be sticky the two areas I see it being the most sticky are on residential rents, which are up about 5% nationwide this year on a year-to-year -year basis. I don't think those are getting ready to just all of a sudden come back down. And I also on labor rates. If you were paying the, 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 the least expensive person in your kitchen at a restaurant $17, and now you're paying them 20 when a little bit more labor becomes available, it's not like you're taking this wage rate late back down to 17 So. I think some of this inflation is not going to be as, as transitory as the Fed expects. I want to ask, you know, do you think, so there, there's this common narrative that whenever rates are rising and inflation's rising, it's bad for growth and it's good for value. And, you know, that, that doesn't really hold up as well empirically as people think. But I'm wondering, do you think there's any truth to that? Do you think it's a bad time for growth investing if we do get significant inflation and we do get significant rising rates? If, if you have very high inflation and rates move up, it's bad for the whole stock market. It's particularly bad for stocks with very high multiples because those multiples will shrink. And theoretically, oftentimes in those scenarios, the multiples shrink faster than the earnings grow because you need the earnings to grow to offset that P, that price earnings multiple shrinkage. But again, right now, one of the reasons growth is running is the bond market is telling you that economic growth is not going to be so hot a year or two out. In fact, in my opinion, I don't know what Jerry thinks about this. I feel like the bond market is telling you that you're going to exit next year. You're going to exit 2022 with growth a lot slower than investors think. Maybe it's two or 3% on GDP. And maybe it's because they don't get a lot of the stimulus done. And in that scenario, growth stocks are going to continue to be afforded very high multiples and be a good investment. So Right now, the bond market, and the bond market could be wrong, it's been wrong before, but right now, the bond market is telling you growth's the place to be. Yeah, and, and it does seem like the, the yield started collapsing as the infrastructure talk started dying down. We thought, you, we thought it could be a lot higher, and that would be this extra fiscal impulse. So, Marty's definitely tampered down their expectation of what can actually be done 
you know, even though fiscal is the new normal, it's still way down from what they thought just, uh, you know, two or three months ago. So Randy, I'm going to ask you our standard closing question. Jeremy, uh, I was going to ask you this as well, but I'm going to save this for when you come on the podcast with us talking about whatever we'll talk about. But so this one's going to be, uh, this one's going to be for Randy. So Randy, um, how we like to end these is based on, you know, your, your experience in the market. If you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would it be? Cut losses and let wires run. Don't let something that's down 10% turn into down 20 or 30%. In stocks that are working, don't be so anxious to take your capital gain. If it's working, don't mess with it, leave it alone, let it run. I wish I'd had you tell me that uh, a couple of years ago, because I always do the opposite of that. So uh, that's definitely good advice. All right. All right, guys, thank you very much. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, if people want to learn more about um, uh, what you're working on, um, the, the, the fund, where can they go to uh, find out more? Uh, they can go to globaladvisors.com. Uh, that'll obviously have more disclosures. It'll describe the team and it'll talk about the O'Neill Growth Index and some of the other stuff we're doing in quantitative investing. Yeah, and on the Wisdom Tree website, you can find WGRO, which is that Wisdom Tree Growth and Momentum Fund that tracks that index that Randy talked about. Uh, a lot of information you can get uh, on, on the fund there. Great. We'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes. Um, you guys, thank you very much for joining us. We hope you have a great uh, rest of your summer and talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Jack. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.